Content warning. This series contains mentions of mental health issues, suicide, sexual abuse, and other sensitive subjects. This is your host, Andrew Pledger, and this is Surviving Bob Jones University, a Christian cult. Episode 3, Teachings, Rules, and Toxic Culture. Let's dig into the teachings and rules at Bob Jones University. When it comes to the teachings, the first place to start with Bob Jones is their creed. You have been hearing the creed in every single introduction of each episode. And what I want to emphasize about the creed is that it starts with the Bible, not God. And it says, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his identification as the Son of God, his vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of his blood on the cross, the resurrection of his body from the tomb, his power to save men from sin, the new birth through the regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life by the grace of God. Now, reading this creed, these are pretty typical beliefs in Christianity and fundamentalism and in evangelicalism. And what I want to emphasize about cults, most people think that a cult has to have strange or weird beliefs. And there are cults that do have that, but a cult doesn't have to have strange beliefs to be considered a cult. Again, I want to emphasize control. Cults, in the most general and basic sense, are coercive control in a group. That is like the most general definition, to control and how the beliefs are forced and ingrained in members. And in addition to the creed, they have a section of their website dedicated to position statements on certain issues, which I'm going to read now. So, number one, alcohol. So, it says, As an orthodox, historic, fundamentalist, non-denominational Christian liberal arts university, Bob Jones University has taken a consistent stand for complete abstinence from the use of alcohol since our inception in 1927. It is a university position that total abstinence from alcohol usage is crucial to the believer's unhindered and unobscured testimony in the home, among believers in the church, in the workplace, and in society at large. What I want you to notice is that the control that they want over every aspect, every area of your life when it comes to you possibly consuming alcohol. Remember, it said in the home, in the church, in the workplace, and in society at large. The section also talks about due to the modern rise in the usage of other addictive substances, this statement furthers the application of our position. And earlier in this statement, it talks a lot about different addictive substances and how Christians must wrestle with this today. The other section is Bible translations. Here it states, the position of the university on biblical translations has not changed since the founding of the school in 1927. Although Bob Jones University does not hold to a King James-only position, 
And from the founder to the present administration, we have never taken the position that there can be only one good translation in the English language. We continue to use the King James Version as a Canvas standard in the undergraduate classroom and chapel pulpit. The other section is biblical counseling. I will cover this in depth in another episode. They have a 33-page document about their philosophy of biblical counseling. And what I want to emphasize is the presupposition with biblical counseling is that you're sinful and fallen. And this is the approach that is taken. So you're not forgiving enough. You're not trusting enough. You're not believing enough. If you would just let God do his work, you'll be fine. They believe that this approach is a solution to all mental health issues, and they do not recognize the complexity of things. And I looked over their document, and it says that they do recognize the complexity of things, but actions speak louder than words. And what I've heard about their actions is that they do not recognize that. Now, the other section I want to dig into is Calvinism, Arminianism, and Reform Theology. So it claims their seminary and really the school are based on scripture and articulate in accordance with their creed and observed in a non-denominational context. So they proclaim to defend and live worthy of the truths of the gospel that comprise the faith that has been fully delivered to the church and the scriptures. They believe the scriptures teach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and apart from any human work of righteousness. They also say that Christ died for all men and for the sins of the whole world, efficient only for those who exercise faith and believe them. So you don't believe what they believe? Sorry, you're going to hell. And they also state that the scriptures state that God elects them into salvation in eternity past and that all those who are saved will be so for eternity. And they say scripture also teaches that man is responsible to repent of sin. This doesn't make sense to me because it's, if people are predestined to burn in hell, how are you responsible to repent of sin? Because if it's predestined, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. If God chose you to go to hell, you're going to hell. So the people who are elected to salvation will be saved, but those who are elected to die in hell or burn in hell. So those who are saved, they are born again by the Holy Spirit and, be and become children of God forever. And this is one thing I want to emphasize in fundamentalism. There are healthier forms of Christianity that believe that everyone is a child of God, but fundamentalists do not take this. You become a child of God when you accept Christ into your heart, and people who don't are children of Satan. Okay, that's one thing I want to emphasize. There's that extreme us versus them mindset, but once you're saved, they say scripture teaches that sanctification is a progressive work of God that continues throughout a believer's life in which a believer cooperates with the Spirit of God in a process of spiritual growth by means of God's Word that makes him more and more free from sin and like Christ in his daily life. Believers are commanded to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Believers are encouraged in the work of evangelism by the reminder that God is not willing that any should perish, even though he elected some for salvation. Believers are made confident in their work of evangelization and the promise that God will bring forth fruit of our labor. The next section is Reformed and Arminian Theological Systems. Our position as articulated beloved is neither classically Reformed nor classically Arminian. We stand on that we believe the scriptures articulate in specific texts, and therefore where these two systems accord with a clear normative 
teaching of Scripture, we agree. Where they do not, we disagree. We believe that Scripture presents certain great paradoxes concerning salvation, which we gladly embrace as belonging properly to God and to Him alone. Therefore, within the bounds of historical biblical orthodoxy, we accord others the same treble grace to hold their views in obedience to their own consciences as a wish from them toward us. The next part is the second coming and reformed eschatology. We believe in the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. A normative reading of the Old Testament text, Jesus's own revelation in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament establish that Jesus will physically and visibly return again in the glory for his people, at which he will restore to the nation of Israel the kingdom that was lost to them because of their sinful rejection of the Messiah at his first coming. We acknowledge that there are interpretive differences between godly, obedient believers related to the timing of this glorious appearing, the prophetic events associated with it, and the nature of this kingdom, and that while such differences ought not be matters of indifference, neither ought they be matters of quarrelsome divisiveness. So yeah, they believe God is going to come back in the clouds and take them all up with them. And the next section is complementarianism. So this is the view of marriage. It says, BJU holds a complementarian position which affirms that men and women are both created equally as full bearers of the image of God, have equal value and standing before God, and equally enjoy the blessings and grace of God. This requires that each gender treat the other with dignity, respect, and love. We believe God assigns distinct roles to men and women in marriage and in the church. BJU affirms that the scripture limits the office of pastor slash elder to spiritually qualified men. While we recognize that not all believers who desire to obey truth agree with every aspect of complementarianism, the basic tenets of complementarianism articulated here reflect what BJU believes and teaches on this issue. The next section is creation. Bob Jones University believes the account of origins in Genesis is a factual narrative of historical events that is God created the universe, including all original kinds of living organisms, including man, in six literal days. We believe the genealogies recorded in Genesis 5 through 11 indicate a date for the creation week less than 10,000 years ago. We believe the fall of man into sin and consequent curse of God recorded in Genesis 3 have profoundly negative consequences for all creation, including the introduction of death. The next section is church philosophy. It says the New Testament teaches that the local church is ind indispensable to the spiritual growth and health of every genuine Christian. Because of these truths, we expect our faculty and staff to be active members in good standing of a local church. Just want to say here, they have a list of churches that they approve of, that you have to choose from, that they approve of their doctrine and their theology and their approach to things. So here are the core biblical doctrines. So the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is inerrant, infallible, historically reliable, providentially preserved revelation of God and is sufficient for faith and practice. Only the 66 books of the traditional Protestant canon are the true authoritative word of God. The next part is the doctrine of God. The triune God exists in three persons who are co-eternal in being and co-equal in nature, attributes, and glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the creator of all things in heaven and earth and the providential ruler of all creation, man. Mankind is a special creation of God made in his own image, created male and female, who will live for all eternity, either in heaven or hell. Adam's rebellion against God resulted in universal human depravity. 
men and women are unable to save themselves from the just wrath of God or deliver themselves from the penalty of eternal death and torment for sin. God has the right to impose moral and ethical mandates on humanity, which he has done generally through human conscience and specifically through his word. These mandates include norms for sexual identity and behavior, marriage between a man and a woman, and protection and preservation of human life from conception. Salvation. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's vicarious, propitiatory, penal atonement alone, and is freely offered to all who will repent of their sins and believe on Christ. The new birth comes through regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the church. I could keep going on, but this is a lot, so I'm going to move on to marriage and human sexuality. I'm just going to do a little brief overview for time's sake. Marriage is only between a man and woman. You have to wait to have sex until marriage. Anything that goes out of this is a sin. You are an abomination in their eyes if you are LGBTQ+. And they believe marriage is a covenantial lifelong relationship between a man and woman who were physically created and assigned these genders by God. So they say they believe God intended heterosexual marriage for the propagation of the human race and the loving expression of healthy relational and sexual intimacy. And to also, this is a picture of the covenant relationship that God has with all believers. So again, with like gender identity, in their eyes and what they believe, there's only two genders. And you're outside of that, you're rejecting God and his original design or his design. And here they say a posture towards those who disagree with us. And it says, all of us are sinners. We live in a world broken by sin and are called to live out our biblical beliefs among those who may disagree with us. We desire to do so in ways that honor God and point them to him. We believe that every person must be treated with respect and compassion and are committed to living out our commitments to these biblical standards with grace and humility. We also believe we are called to speak God's truth and love as we call all men to recognize that all human sinfulness is an offense to God, that God has displayed immense grace and mercy toward all sinners, and he offers a full and free forgiveness through Jesus Christ to all who repent and forsake their sin and turn in faith to him. What I want to say, they don't treat people with respect and compassion, and a lot of people know this, and they do not have this loving attitude. They twist the word love. And cults love to twist and change definitions of words. So in the part that it says we're called to speak God's truth in love, let me tell you, I have had plenty of people be really hateful to me throughout all of my life in Christianity and tell me that they're admonishing me, they're disciplining me, they're showing me Christ's love. And I know a lot of other people have experienced this too. And really, what is called God's love in these instances when these Christians feel compelled to go to unbelievers or people who disagree, basically telling them that they are sinning, that they are going to hell, and using their fear-based tactics they've been indoctrinated with, using it, trying to control and manipulate the person. And really, a lot of these people, they get this self-righteous high off of it. They feel like they're so much better. They're saved. They're going to heaven. They're, in quotes, right with God, and you're not. And so that's what I'm going to say about that. The next section is music. They have a philosophical framework on policies around music, which I don't even have time to read. So basically, what I want to emphasize with music, anything that has any kind of peppy beat, 
no, don't do it. And their views in music is based on racism because they're like, oh, indigenous people and African tribes have used certain music for demonic rituals. So that's evil. So we don't need to have that in our music. In their eyes, the only purpose of music is to worship and glorify God. There is no other reason to have music. And anything that takes away from that, whether it's any kind of peppy beat that makes you feel good and want to move your body or dance, that's bringing the attention away from God. So it's all about what they believe will bring glory to God. And they believe in music, not just beyond their worship. If you want to listen to recreational music, like they don't want you to listen to like most music. I think what's allowed is like classical and bluegrass, which is new because of Pedant, because he likes bluegrass. So they changed that rule for him. The last thing is sanctity of life. So one thing I want to emphasize with this is fundamentalist Christians and these evangelicals, they are not pro-life. They are anti-abortion. Once a child is born, they will not fucking help you at all. They feel so good if they stop someone from getting an abortion and they feel like they've done their work. Oh, they've done the Lord's work. But once that child is born, they don't give a shit. They don't care. And abortion did not become an issue until I think it was like the 70s and 80s. But before abortion, segregation was the issue that Christians used to get the vote. And once they realized they couldn't be bigots anymore, openly at least, that's when they switched to abortion. Before that, it wasn't a big deal. And I just want to emphasize that. The next thing I want to dig into is a little bit more of the teachings. And this is something that Camille Lewis sent me. And this is from 1994. It was, I think it's from a sermon and it was by Dr. David C. Enns. And this is just a perfect, I think, overview of the beliefs of fundamentalist Christians. And this is what it says. The title says, what is a fundamentalist? And it says, a fundamentalist is one who believes and obeys everything that is clearly taught in scriptures. All that is clearly taught, whether belief or conduct, is fundamental and therefore essential to the Christian faith. A fundamentalist will separate on the basis of any kind of denial of that which is clearly taught. He will not compromise that which is fundamental. He will separate on the basis of two distinct categories. The first category is heresy, also known as belief. And the second thing is willful disobedience or practice. So the two aspects are belief and practice. A fundamentalist will separate from either unbelievers or believers who violate fundamental truths or commands of scripture. A fundamentalist takes seriously the clear command to love his brethren and to promote biblical unity among his brethren. A fundamentalist will fellowship with all who believe and obey what is clearly taught. A fundamentalist will participate with other fundamentalists to the extent that agreement on other non-fundamental beliefs renders it possible. A fundamentalist operates on the basis of principle, also known as what is involved, not personality, who is involved. So what I want to emphasize is all of this separation, separation from anyone who believes differently or thinks differently, and only surrounding yourself with people who believe exactly like you. Now, that was an overview of the teachings at Bob Jones. And next, I want to dig into their rule book. And what I want to emphasize and say is their student handbook, it's 80 pages long. But I think the general rules, some of them that have always stayed the same, and I want to start with no alcohol, no any kind of drugs at all, 
No secular music. Guys and girls cannot be alone together unless it's in the public in a well-lit area. You cannot have physical contact with opposite genders. Same-sex relationships are not allowed. You're not allowed to exist there or be there as a queer person in general. You cannot go alone or drive in a car with someone of the opposite gender. Can't go off campus with someone alone of the opposite gender. You're required to participate in all of their activities. So this would be chapel, discipleship groups, society, church attendance. And I will cover this more in depth later on in the next episode. If you are between the ages of 18 and 22 and you are coming to Bob Jones from out of state, you are required to live on campus all four years. And people have told me, oh, it's normal for colleges to force students to live on campus. And what I want to say from what I've researched, most colleges only force freshmen to live on campus the first year. But after that, most colleges let you live off campus if you desire. But Bob Jones, if you're between the ages of 18 and 22 and you live from out of state, you stay on campus all four years. And this is because you are subjected to a hierarchical leadership structure in every single dorm. And a big part of the dorms is that you have discipleship groups that meet several nights a week. And that's a part of the dorm experience. Again, there's no physical contact between opposite genders or no same-sex relationships, no kissing, and they demonize touching each other in any way. They control the books you have, the music you listen to, the video games, just any and all media that you have access to. On their internet, they block a lot of sites. You're not allowed to stay overnight unless you have a pass. There are a few exceptions of some things, but if you're staying somewhere overnight, you have to let them know and there has to be a pass and that pass can be denied. They're very strict about the TV that you watch. And while I was there, they blocked streaming services for a while, but finally stopped blocking them. But they still have the rules around TV. Of course, no dancing. And they're also strict about what you put on social media. If there's something you put on social media that goes against their doctrines, you're out, you're kicked out. No gambling. They have a very strict dress code for women and for men. You have to wear this the whole day. The exception is that if you stay in your dorm, you can have casual clothes. But if you leave the dorm and it's before 5 p.m., you have to wear their attire that they require of you. And this is just a general overview. There are some other rules, but these are the main things. Overview of the rules that are still in place today. And next, what I really want to dig into is the toxic culture at Bob Jones University. And I interview a few survivors and their perspectives on the toxic culture. The first people I interview are Sharon and Alex. They are choosing to stay anonymous, but they have a lot to say about the toxic culture at Bob Jones University. Yeah, the culture of Bob Jones University is very much like other religious institutions, even some that may be very dissimilar to the doctrine and traditions of Bob Jones University. I remember recently I was listening to this podcast and it was about this guy who came from the Mormon church. He came out of the Mormon church, but he relays his experiences within the church. And he was talking principally about how they created a shame structure 
that was created to both keep people in and keep people doing what they wanted them to do. And these structures are intended to keep people within the boundaries of what the group or the cult wants them to be in and just conform to everybody else through social peer pressure, social pressures and everything. And if you behave a certain way that isn't within the guidelines that they have set, then you're ostracized or you were aware of those repercussions. And these shame structures are very prevalent and a lot of fundamentalist circles of a lot of different kinds, fundamentalist circles regarding the Baptist church, the Mormon church, whether it's Christian or not, that doesn't really apply because fundamentalism can take a lot of different funny and interesting shapes, especially take it out of American culture completely. But his experiences getting out of that were just interesting to me because growing up in a very Christian home, I'm constantly like aware of the downfalls and the toxic side that can come out of the Christian fundamentalist circles. Even though I wouldn't really say we were fundamentalists, we were, and we believed in God's word as an errant authority that was just for like all of our attention to be placed on. And it was the final say it was king, not necessarily tradition, not something else. And coming from that into a Baptist fundamental circle like Bob Jones, it was similar enough and God's word was king or whatever. But obviously there's a lot of different interpretations of what that could mean. And everybody says something different. And while Bob Jones claims to be a non-denominational place, there's a lot of uh, fundamental Baptist ideas and ideologies that are pushed in it, especially just from the type of people that run the show there and sit at the top of the leadership hierarchy. I feel like understanding that toxic environment while I was there was definitely important for me. It was very pervasive. And what are the specific toxic things about Bob Jones? There's a lot of toxicity within the relationships between the residence hall supervisors and the RAs, the resident assistants, and the relationships they have with the students. And it's not that they're there trying to help the students adjust to college, or that's chiefly what they're doing, as in a lot of universities, but they're trying to help students be this identity that they want the school to be as a whole. And a lot of the RAs are chosen very specifically, not necessarily based on how well that they could interact with students, but do they have the charisma that the school wants? Do they have that identity? Do they have all of that? Because the school at the end of the day wants this very specific image to present to the world that this is the ideal Christian. This is the ideal form that our fundamentalist doctrine is going to look like and act it out in a very pragmatic sense. And that's through everyday life and whatnot. And obviously the dorms are a little bit of the foundation of everyday life because our homes and that's the students' homes, our homes is where everything comes from, our actions and the people that were mostly around, the roommates and and everything. And if you're not really anywhere else, it's probably likely you're going to be there. Exercising that authority from that foundation yes and it's is and the thing is it's not they're not trying to help people control them quote unquote help them they're trying to make them what they want them to be 
And this is the interesting thing to me because they have an idea of what they believe is the, in air quotes, kind of Christian, or the, really, they see it as the only way to be a Christian. And they have this identity that they want you to have. They don't want your own personal identity. And they want you to follow really their theology. And if you don't come to the same conclusions as what they believe you're seeing is not as spiritual or not with God. Cults don't want you to have your own identity. They don't want you to explore that. They have the memory. And if you're not going along with that, you're bad, you're rebellious, or you're not right with God. And there are punishments and things put into place to realign you with their interpretation. And that's the thing for me. Like, I respect people's beliefs in saying that God's word is the truth, but it's one thing to say our interpretation is the truth. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different thing to me, mm-hmm. completely. And it's a mm, it's really culty in that sense. Adding on to what he said, though, when he talked about RAs and like supervisors having a toxic relationship, they choose like RAs that are younger than like certain like seniors in the university and you can't communicate with them because they feel like they know better than us and they have that high authority and it feels like they have clicks in that school and so they're the most popular person on campus and have to go to them to share your problems and if you don't then oh my gosh you have some sort of sin issue and that i found really toxic like you couldn't go into your ra's room uh, like freely and go and talk to them yeah no it's all good stuff i feel like the whole idea which you were saying about talking about the interpretation and whatnot is their truth or whatever and while it may be their truth they also treat it as a general dogma that everybody is supposed to subscribe to because this is the way that it's supposed to be done and they don't welcome anything that comes up against that if it challenges it, if it derails it a little bit, because then that challenges the identity the school wants to build. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the school isn't concerned about truth and understanding God in general and trying to foster students' lives in the direction of God and truth, but they're interested in fostering them in the direction of a specific brand of truth that they want it to look like. And that's that's where it becomes toxic because that's the control mechanisms trying to eliminate anything that doesn't look like what they want it to look like. And by just filtering out everything that isn't really aligning with what they want it to align with, they can just control and manipulate the students' minds and the students don't really even realize what's going on anymore until they leave the institution and why many students get out of that and realize what it's all about or maybe they have enough outside influence why they're in the school to realize what that school is a lot of them don't and they get this very judgy more or less just toxic nature about them where they feel like oh i have the truth and i have what i want and because it's what works for me right now and it was what makes me work in this environment is what you need to and if you don't get this and if you don't have this then you're doing it wrong rather than looking at it from what works for you may not work for me and and we're all trying to seek our own idea and our own identity with god 
but they want to create that God for us and they create those expectations. Yeah. And personally, I feel like letting people just come and approach things with their own expectations because we're all going to carry those with us. But instead of creating those for us, let us discover that with the Bible rather than their idea of what the Bible needs to look like. They do talk about, oh yeah, had her own spiritual walk have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they have this assumption that if you do that, you'll automatically come to the same conclusions and beliefs that we do. And that means you're right with God. And when you don't, you're not right with God. That's not God's truth. And like going a little back to what you were saying, a lot of students don't realize the effect of the university until they leave. And I think it's because so many of us come from this a very authoritarian environment where you're not supposed to question authority. Your needs don't matter. Your opinions don't matter. You just trust and obey higher authorities. And I think a lot of us are so used to that and we don't realize, I think, the effects of it until we really start questioning. And in that kind of authoritarian environment, when you do start questioning it and just actually come to maybe higher leadership with some concerns. I think this is actually really harmful to me. You're then going against what they see as the truth. Biblical counseling, for example, they're very dogmatic about their approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a very unhealthy level of conformity expected in that school that just makes me like fundamentally uncomfortable. And that's something I really felt because if I wasn't exactly what they wanted me to be, that I wasn't going to get the positions of leadership and be able to be involved in those ways. And I could get myself involved in what I wanted and I could get myself involved in my little niche art stuff, but I couldn't necessarily get myself involved in anything where I could help other people because I had to help other people in the way they wanted me to help other people. And there wasn't any just understanding that maybe we should let this like an organic relationship happen between me and maybe if I'm an RA or something between me and the people on the hall, but rather I was supposed to like believe a certain set of things that aligned with what the school's agenda was. And I think when it's all said and done, that's one of the biggest issues is just the level of conformity expected to something very specific, but they tack on this whole conformity or this whole identity they've built. They've created, they've attributed that to a higher power, God. So there's also that level of sin that we were talking about, where if you don't conform and you don't do these things, well, you're not disappointing us, you're disappointing God and now you need to go pray about it. And because we've created this like heaven hell dynamic, now if you do these things that don't really conform to what we want you to conform to, you are damning yourself to an eternal hell. And then we'll just talk about how painful that is to 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 influence you to do what we want you to do. Yeah, I remember growing up in the IFB of how they always emphasize eternal security in your salvation. But I noticed a catch to that. And they would tell you, oh, these are signs that you're not really saved. This is what I personally heard. I don't know if it was as much as Bob Jones but I remember hearing things like, if you don't conform or happily conform to the rules that we give you, or you don't happily like going to church or doing these regular rituals, and that's a sign that you're not saved. So there was like, psych, not really. So again, if you're, if it's resting on eternal damnation, 
and science of you being saved is conforming to this theology that's so controlling and it literally people are scared and they don't want to deal with the fear of hell or the cognitive dissonance of that so it's another thing i think that reinforces that conformity but also i think you are always being watched mm-hmm. on that campus yeah I think it's also just important to remember how this structure actually does appeal to a lot of people. And a lot of people, maybe even if they didn't exactly grow up with it, they're they're looking for something to be their identity that isn't them. Because a lot of people, frankly, they don't really want to put that work in. And they want to just find something that's just truth and that they can put their life on. And and it fundamentally has, they just don't want to deal with the uncertainty of the afterlife or anything. And so they'll find a cult or a denomination of Christian teaching or any other religious institution. And then they'll just put all their eggs in that basket and just run with it because that that provides that sense of certainty that they so badly want. Yeah. And so this culture that is is created through these institutions like Bob Jones, it does foster that. And I think it does draw a lot of people who really actually want that. And they don't see that as a bad thing. Yeah, I think... Cults are so attractive because, number one, as human beings, we're just naturally social. We need that group. We need that community. And I think that's what draws down a lot of people. But I think what cults do is they then give you this structure, these rules to follow. Like, oh, this is the way you have a happy life. Just follow all these rules. Conform. Don't speak up. And these people... And also you're told that you're pleasing God if you conform to this and don't question and it's seen as God's truth. And that can be really, I think, addictive for a lot of people. And just digging into the boges, I think there there are certain personalities that really love it a lot more than others. There are some people that get, I guess you would say, this self-righteous high from following this list of rules And then seeing people who aren't following those rules perfectly, snitching on them, judging them, and feeling like you're spiritually superior in a way, or that God is more pleased with you or loves you more. And like it creates this culture of you do not know who you can trust, who you cannot trust. You're just hypervigilant. And like you hide that part of yourself and you put on this identity or this image that they want you portray and like i remember for me like especially the first year going to bob jones is just always so scared <laughs> oh like, who do i talk to and like even afraid to say that i don't like it here because that was just seen as oh if you don't like going here then maybe you're not a christian a christian or a true christian it's supposed to be a home environment quote unquote but they don't make you feel safe you're supposed to be vulnerable like if you're supposed to be vulnerable with someone you trust them you don't feel like you can trust anyone on that campus because of these certain expectations that each supervisor has for their students. And it puts us in a very, like, up position. You can't make friends. It takes a while. Like, in general, it takes a while to make friends. And then you're in that university. You're like, okay, how do you make friends all of a sudden? <laughs> like, in that school, it just, I know for me, it was, like, personally hard to trust anyone. And I straight up told people, like, I don't like it here. So people actually hated me for saying that. They're like, oh, no, you should stay. You should see how it is. But I was like, no, 
Like, I don't even know who to trust. Eventually, like, I just went with the flow. I like, could get used to it, but I didn't trust anyone. I didn't know who to talk to. It took me a while to actually, like, talk to people, get to know them, actually get meals with them without being on campus. Yeah, and it's like, when you don't automatically love being in the environment and you don't conform, you're automatically seen as a threat. And in that, in, in these fundamentalist environments, difference equals a danger. I think in The next guest I interview is Michaela Halliwell, and she has a lot to say about the toxic culture and the rules at Bob Jones University. She attended the school from 2007 to 2011. How did you end up at Bob Jones University? People have asked me that a lot over the years. You know, well, if it was such a horrible place, why did you go? Why didn't you leave? And it wasn't for lack of trying. I grew up in this independent fundamental Baptist world. My dad is pastor at one of the bigger churches that funneled kids into Bob Jones. All through high school, I visited Bob Jones for academic competitions. I was familiar with the university. I was familiar with the teachers, the teachings, the books. I mean, I grew up with the the BJU Press books on my bookshelf, you know, this was this was our world. And so, you know, it was kind of what you did when you graduated from our Christian high schools. You went to a Christian college and the Christian colleges that we were funneled into were Bob Jones, obviously Pensacola Christian College, Northland University, Clearwater Christian College, which is no longer around. And then maybe a couple went to Liberty, maybe <laughs> But for the most part, most of my class went to Bob Jones. And so I, I kind of had it on a pedestal my whole life. Like, oh, you know, this is the next step. I'm going to be free. I'm going to be able to spread my wings and, you know, grow up a little bit. And and that definitely was one of the harder, like, culture shocks when I got there was that it was actually stricter than how I grew up. Um, I called my parents every day for about two and a half years crying, asking to transfer somewhere else. And I always got the same answer back, which was, no, God wants you there. Ultimately, I attended because I didn't have a choice. And that's also kind of what you did. I was a minor. I was 16 when I graduated high school. Um, I did my high school and senior year or junior and senior year together on a fast track. So I went to junior year at my Christian school and I did senior year at night. And that was my own choice. I wanted to get out of high school. I wanted to move on. So I was a minor. I didn't have autonomy as a kid. I didn't even have my driver's license until my junior year of college. <laughs> so after about two and a half years of begging, I just kind of resigned myself to carrying out the last two years. And I graduated when I was 20. Looking back, I always envied people with like, quote unquote, normal college experiences. And I wish I had studied something else or some somewhere else. And I wish I could save that girl that was going through all that because at 16, that's not what your experiences are supposed to be, right? But it was, and it made me who I am. And I think it made me stronger and smarter and more aware of some things. And so, yeah, that's how I landed there and <laughs> very like generally how it was to be there. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm just thinking in my mind of being 16 years old 
and at Bob Jones University. And here you are going from a high control environment. And then you said it was into another one that you felt was so much more controlling than your own background. Going to Bob Jones, it felt very much with the iron bars and everything. We kind of would joke low key, you know, without getting caught that it was like prison sometimes. Yes. And like, that's why I changed the podcast photo with the iron bars, because it was iconic. Yeah, I think yeah. it was an iconic part of Bob Jones. And it just was a symbol, I think, that represented what it was like really going there. And like you, you came way later than I did, but it I did. held up over, you know, the different generations of students, because mm-hmm. even talking to people that went way before I did, that was something that they kind of held on to, too. It's it's symbolic for sure that you, you felt kept in not and they would say that it's to keep other people out but you felt kept in you know i left campus twice my entire freshman year oh my god and that was just on the campus bus to go to walmart to get things mm. that i needed yes and like it it has been interesting to talk to other survivors and see how the rules have changed they have laxed up a lot and a lot of people have given me crap about making this podcast because they're like, oh, you should have gone here then. It was so much worse. <laughs> and when I hear that, it's like, oh, well, they're not as abusive anymore. So stop talking about it. Oh, yeah. So it's still, so it doesn't count then. Yeah. No, I got that too in my time, though. I remember complaining to my parents, like I said, all the time about, you know, this is no fun. I, I feel unsafe or I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm bored or... These people are making, are bullying me, whatever it was. I mean, I came across some unsafe situations too. And it was, well, at least you didn't have to wear nylons all the time, or at least you didn't have to do that. And it was, it was kind of like, well, my pain was worse than your pain. And kind of were like seeing whose is worse. And in reality, why put people through that in the first place? You know, it's, it's nonsensical. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I empathize with you. That's not a new thing. And it still won't be a new thing if they're around yeah. for four years, you know. And to me, I feel like it's like a, in a way to quiet people's voices. It's reductionist. It's reductionist and it shames people, I think, and to keep them silent. So it's just it breaks it breaks my heart to hear about you calling your parents every day crying about your misery there. And they did what they thought was right. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk about how specifically the teachings and the rules affected you. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I grew up in a strict Christian household, but it was happy. You know, I I don't have unpleasant childhood memories. My my parents and I got along for the most part. I was never unhappy. I was never abused. Nothing like that. Like I had a happy childhood. I had a happy teenage years. Um, I've just always been kind of, um, as my dad would say, bull in the china shop, strong-willed, <laughs> hard-headed. I like kind of want to think for myself and do my own thing. And so when I graduated early, I was I, I didn't really expect to have a bad experience at Bob Jones. I kind of was ready for the adventure of it all and like had my head in the clouds a little bit and it was on a pedestal. It was, you know, it was looked up to my whole life. Like it was, it, it was like you could do no wrong kind of thing. Um, and I going there that shattered, obviously, because you realize that um, organizations are made up of people and people make mistakes. And um, they made a hell of a lot, obviously, and continue. 
Um, generally, my experiences there were um, okay, but you know, their their teachings and their rules are just so restrictive. I mean, I could go through the Rolodex. I had a problem with almost every single rule that they had, the music, the dress code, the church list that you could go to, how to handle when you have real life issues like a roommate that's experienced sexual assault or when a grandparent passes away and nothing makes sense anymore, you know? So even though I had dreamed about spreading my wings and I knew that Bob Jones was going to be the place that I expected to do that, I kind of got there and felt immediately up against a wall um, and a very looming, large, powerful wall. And I was I was just this little person going against this huge organization with a lot of what I thought at that time political power. You know, so even this experience talking about this is very is part of a healing process because I'm I'm able to kind of take that power back. You know, I I find my voice in this, whereas I would never have spoken up back then. You know, there's too much fear there. So let's see some of the rules and teachings, how they affected me. The content that you are allowed to consume is very restricted. And that is everything from books, podcasts, movies, TV shows, radio shows, CDs, um, magazines, the slogans on your T-shirt. All the content is monitored constantly. You sign something when you get there, uh, giving them access to your computer and your internet. You're not on the internet. You're on the intranet. And so everything that you browse, of course, is monitored. Um, and uh, students who ever violate any of those boundaries and end up on something that they shouldn't are not put on a blacklist of sites. They're put on a whitelist of sites. So it's not sites you can't go to, um, but it's sites that you can only go to. News sites you cannot visit. You can't have social media. You can't. I mean, as a 22-year-old, you know, like you can't you can't visit any of those things. Um one of the biggest like content restrictions that stand out to me when I was there was I think it was during my junior year. That was my hardest year there. I had I, I was a huge reader back then and I used to go off campus to Barnes and Nobles and sit in my car and use their Wi-Fi so I wouldn't be on the college Wi-Fi. And I would watch shows on my laptop and just kind of relax and get away from everybody. You know, you live with four people in a room at a time. And so any type of solitude that you can get is always welcome. But I came across a and today I would I would never read them either because it's it's a Christian author named Rob Bell and Donald Miller. These two authors, um, I really got stuck on their books. And Donald Miller wrote Blue Like Jazz. Rob Bell has written um things like Velvet Elvis and, you know, more along those lines. There's tons of books out. Well, I I had brought those books. I had bought them at the mall or no, it was not at the mall. It was probably at Barnes and Nobles. I brought them back and I was reading them and um, I would write my thoughts just like people would write down sermon notes. I would write my thoughts about what these guys were teaching. These are evangelical pastors, Donald Miller and and Rob Bell. I mean, very famous. But obviously, the teaching, even though Christian teaching, is diagonal to what Bob Jones wants you to be on, right? It's a little too liberal. It's a little too free thinking. It's a little too, 
non-literal in their interpretation of the Bible. You know, Rob Bell has something in his book, Heaven or Hell, where he mentions that heaven and hell aren't literal places out in, you know, space or wherever, but they're here on earth. They're, they're experiences that you go through. You know, a divorce can be hell. Losing a parent or a child can be hell. And that is what he was defining it as. I found myself journaling about these books and kind of my box was just broadening a little bit in my mind. My worldview was expanding just a little bit. You know, obviously I still believed in God. I still believed in all of the things that we were to recite in the creed. But my worldview was just expanding just a little bit, getting a little bit bigger. And my roommate noticed one of these books in my backpack or something like that. And she logged into my computer while I was gone one day and went through my journal that I kept on a Word document, printed it out along with the books and took them to the Dean of Women. So you talk about in, uh, abuse of power, invasion of privacy is a humongous thing at Bob Jones University. Um, you are encouraged to spy on people, to keep them accountable. You know, you're lifting each other up is their explanation. You're catching them from from a dark path. And so I I believe she probably truly thought she, what she was doing was right. You know, she's the spiritual leader of the room or the uh, the PC, the prayer captain is what they were called back then. And and she was kind of told to monitor me. And she did. And so I remember being called into the Dean of Women and you get like a really dry email and that's that's this is the point in my life where I can look back and say, "Oh, that was anxiety." that I had, but I didn't know what anxiety was. You know, I just knew that I had a pit in my stomach that felt like a rock sinking me down and I was scared. And so I go into the Dean of Women and I see my journal and the books laid out there. And essentially they told me that I was on a dark path and that they had called my father. And so my dad actually had to drive down to the university and I wasn't in the room when they talked to him, but they talked to him for a good hour, hour and a half behind closed doors and I remember him just coming out looking really disappointed. And they used that family aspect of like, you're this close to getting kicked out, girl. And your dad got his degree from here. So that's not all that's in jeopardy. It's a, it was a family dynamic that was threatened, not just, it wasn't just, hey, we don't, we don't really like you reading these. These are a little off, you know, um, which even that <laughs> overstepping of power, right? It was a, we know who your parents are. Your dad has his job because he earned his degree here. You know, and and don't cross us. We'll bring him in. The content being monitored is extreme. Extreme. You can't have words on your shirt because the guys might look at your boobs. You know, like all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's, the 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 more down the rabbit hole you get with how they executed situations like that for control, it, I mean, there's no stopping. You know, as you're talking to people with stories like this, it's nonstop. I don't know how they kept up with it all. <laughs> That's why they had to make police out of the students. That's why you have to. You have to. Oh, I know. We had talked about on social media how 
Bob Jones would have a lecture or a class that would go through the student handbook. Could you talk about that a little bit? That wasn't started until I was. No, it was started. You didn't take it until you were a sophomore. And I remember the first class they asked, you're probably sitting there wondering, why in the world didn't I take this as a freshman? Why am I taking it as a sophomore? The real reason is because they want to get you on every year when it's still fresh when you're a freshman. <laughs> but the reason they gave was that now we could ask better questions having lived it, right? But it was, I can't remember what they called the class, maybe something like lifestyles or Christian practices, something like that. I don't remember the exact name of the class, but it was in Stratton Hall, that big like where you have the history class, like that big hall next to like the the bookshop and the gift shop and all that stuff right there. And so it was this big class and it's all sophomores. And they would just every week go through a different section and kind of have, they would have different teachers like preach on it. And so it would go over different rules. And sometimes it would just be like, why, why do we have a curfew? Why do we have a bedtime? Or why aren't you allowed on front campus at night with the opposite gender? Why aren't girls allowed to wear pants? Why are girls required to wear nylons? Why are men required to keep their hair a certain way? Why can't you have more than two earrings? Why can't you have tattoos? Why can't you have words on your just like all these? It was an explanation for everything, right? Everything. And most of the time, the answer was, we do it to protect you. We do it to protect you. And so they would just go through that all, all semester long. It was like a one credit class. You didn't really have to do anything except I think maybe one of the quizzes was like you had to write out the creed verbatim or something like that. And you would have little things here and there that maybe they would grade. But it wasn't like an intense class. It was essentially another chapel where they were just going through the handbook. And I'm curious, would they say that, I know you mentioned that they said, oh, we're protecting you, but do they ever use the Bible and say, oh, this is God's word, we're basing this on God's yeah. truth? Oh, they don't ever not say that. That's everything is based on that. Everything comes back around to that all the time. Their interpretation or their twist on a certain interpretation of a verse or a commentary's interpretation or... Yeah, of course. It always comes back around to that. You would have verses attached to everything. And even their handbook has verses just inundated in there. It's just it's constant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surviving Bob Jones University. It would be greatly appreciated if you could give the podcast a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews helps listeners just like you find the show.